mate, Forty here. We're going out live over YouTube. We're going out live over Rumble and uh, Odyssey. We're going out live over Twitter and Facebook. Right, the gang's all here. Wow. So I've just had a fair dinkum day of hard yakka. I was up at 1am to watch the World Cup. I was up and then, you know, got a little sleep. Then about 5am Australian time, uh, the Cowboys started playing. What a heartbreaking loss in overtime. Unbelievable. 40 to 34 loss to Jacksonville Jaguars. So I had lots of caffeine, put in a hard day of hard yakka, all right? Yakka is originally an Aboriginal word, I believe. It's Australian slang for hard work. So I put in eight hours of lifting bags of fertilizer. And uh, now I just want to do a live stream about Elon Musk, right? I just listened to this article in Bloomberg Businessweek. Elon Musk Twitter is a Shakespearean psychodrama set in Silicon Valley. And and my main question is, why are all the news stories about Elon Musk and Twitter, why do they all have the same emotional tone? Did uh, did the news media all all get together to decide on, on a shared emotional tone for all articles about Elon Musk? Or is the news media simply reflecting reality? Is, is that what's going on? They're just giving us the straight truth, and those of us who like Twitter, right? maybe we, we just can't handle the truth. Perhaps that's it. I mean, I think Twitter's substantially better. Twitter's more free. Twitter's more fun. right? I'm enjoying the heck out of Elon Musk Twitter. So I want him to keep running the show or at least, uh, you know, bring on someone who kind of shares his wavelength. And uh, by the way, what happened to Kanye West? Kanye West has completely disappeared, right? I I thought Kanye West was going to save the white race, (laughs) that Kanye West was going to save America. Ever look at Arts Technica? I do. There's, There's a lot of good stuff on there, reasonable and responsible says, Judaism is not primarily a faith, it's primarily a tribal identity. Reasonable and responsible comments, while I would not doubt that one could find any number of various Jewish identifying individuals or groups would affirm the oft-repeated assertion of yours, fact remains that Judaism absolutely is a religion. Yeah, it's a tribe that has its own religion. So if you are an outsider and you want to understand Judaism, I think it is more helpful to understand it is a tribe that has its own religion, rather than understanding it as a religion. And even many Orthodox rabbis don't like the the definition of of Judaism or Yiddishkeit as a religion. Like the the more religious the Jew, the less likely they are to talk about Judaism, right? The more likely they are to talk about Yiddishkeit, the the Jewish way of life, uh, the life of Torah, right? Talking about, you know, thank you for being part of our community of faith. This is not how Jews tend to talk. Orthodox Jews, Haredi Jews, right? Don't talk, you know, thank you for, for being part of our community of faith. Or thank you for being part of our religion. The more religious the Jew, the less likely they are to regard their way of life as a religion. 
right? This idea that there's this, you know, segment of life that is for religion, that there is, you know, a cathedral where you go to worship God, and it's just a slice of life. Uh, Judaism, Yiddishkeit, is the way of life for the Jewish people that is comprehensive from how you tie your shoelaces to how you put on your clothes in the morning to when you make love to your wife to how you conduct yourself in business. I just find, all right, obviously we're doing dealing with vast you know, generalizations here. My experience is the more religious the Jew, the less likely they are to talk about Judaism as a religion. Instead, it's it's a way of life. It's, you know, divine commandment. It's you know, the community of faith thing. It's not something that I notice that uh, the most religious Jews identify with. Here in Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yes, that's the Shema. And any definition or conception of Judaism that does not have the above creed as its core is analogous to Christianity that does not have some concept of Jesus at its core. Well, try talking to Orthodox Jews about creed. It is not a topic that Orthodox Jews like to talk about. They don't think about Judaism having a creed. Now, you'll find a few Orthodox Jews are happy to talk about a, a creed, and you'll find you know a few Orthodox Jews are happy to talk about Jewish beliefs and the Jewish religion and the Jewish faith, but generally speaking, no. It's a way of life. It's the burden of the kingdom of heaven. So looking at reasonable responses, it's very much a particular conception of God that formed the Jewish people. Yes, particular conception of God did help to form the Jewish people, just as the Jewish people helped to inform a particular pathway and conception of God. They're both influencing each other. Abraham, the progenitor of the Jewish people, heroically defied the culture of idolatry that he was born into to declare the truth of the one true invisible God and creator of the universe. Thus, in choosing the one true God, that one true God in turn chose Abraham and his descendants to be his cherished people. Right, so this is right, a familiar part of uh, Jewish apologetics and this is you know, very much traditional reasoning, but for most people who practice traditional Orthodox Judaism, it's, it's a way of life, it's a burden of the kingdom of heaven that they feel like they've been assigned. They don't think of it primarily in terms of faith or as uh, religion. That's just uh, my, my experience. So where is Kanye West? What's your theory on what's happened to Kanye West? So... My proposal two months ago was that you cannot stay in public life in America and be persistently publicly critical of the Jews. And I said Kanye West would, would burn out. He would, he would have to stop criticizing the Jews. And that seems to be indeed what has happened. Like His life has crashed since criticizing the Jews, not necessarily because criticizing the Jews, his life crashed. But criticizing the Jews seems for Kanye West and for many others to be one symptom of their alcoholism and you know, drug problems. So both uh, Kanye West, Richard Spencer talk about being alcoholics. And I think that is a useful form of abductive reasoning to understand their trajectory. Right? That's where abductive reasoning is where you ch choose the, you know, the simplest, most powerful explanation for what's going on. It's the type of reasoning that's used in uh, detective stories, for example. So 
I'm enjoying the heck out of what Elon Musk is doing on Twitter. But uh, the news media thinks he's just lost his mind. Richard Spencer says he's just uh, lost his mind. I think we've got more free speech. I, I think it, it's fun that uh, a whole bunch of people have you know, come on board. And you know, where the heck? Oh. Let's see. Here we go. Sarah Fryer and Brad Stone for Bloomberg Businessweek. Okay. Psychodrama set in Silicon Valley. Elon Musk's antics aren't helping his wealth, shareholders, or reputation. Well, sometimes there are more important things in life than wealth. Sometimes there are more important things in life than your reputation. Sometimes there are more important things in life than your shareholders. So Elon Musk, I think part of him feels like he's saving Western civilization. And I don't think that's you know, completely ridiculous. Elon Musk is ruling his newest acquisition the way he does the rest of his empire. Impulsively, vindictively, loudly. It really doesn't need to be this way. Oh, so a lot of people are participating in Twitter. Like use of Twitter is up. He has Twitter going better than ever with about one third of the staff that used to be there at Twitter. Like, I think he's on a great trajectory. Written by Kurt Wagner, Sarah Fryer, and Brad Stone for Bloomberg Businessweek. Narrated by Michael David Axtell. It was day five of Elon Musk's riveting, rambunctious takeover of Twitter. The owner and self-proclaimed chief twit had spent much of the last weekend in October at his new company's San Francisco headquarters among people desperate to please him, employees angling to keep their jobs amid steep layoffs, and personal advisors helping him with the turnaround. He arrived in New York at 2 a.m. that Monday with plans to visit Twitter's offices in Chelsea and spend the day courting advertisers, the group most important to the company's survival. Wait, why are advertisers the group most important for the company's survival? I would think users are the people most important for Twitter's survival. And not people like you and me, aren't we the most important group for Twitter's survival? In the early afternoon, a team from Horizon Media stopped by. Horizon is one of the largest ad agencies in the world, chaperoned to brands such as Capital One and Burger King. Also in attendance were two ad execs from Twitter, as well as two... God forbid Elon Musk does not bow down to these very important advertising executives. God forbid that he doesn't run Twitter according to the desires of very important ad executives. Two major fans of Musk's, investor and podcaster Jason Calacanis, and inexplicably his mother, Mae Musk. Horizon Chief Executive Officer Bill Coingsberg sat at the head of the table with a colleague. Some of my clients knew that I was going to meet you, Coingsberg said, and they all asked. Is Do I see parallels between Musk and Trump? Yes, very much. Many parallels. And overall, I think the Trump presidency was a good thing. He is a deeply flawed person, Donald Trump. He's done a lot of stupid things overall. I think he's making the world a better place. So let's have a look at Richard Spencer's Twitter. So what's going on? First of all, Elon Musk is unserious, sociopathic, and our next president. All right, very much attention-grabbing. 
But uh, who's more likely to be unserious? Elon Musk, about the world's rich, most richest man, about the world's most you know talked about man right now, perhaps the world's most important man right now, or Richard Spencer? Uh, sociopathic. So who's more likely to be sociopathic, Elon Musk or Richard Spencer? And next president, he was not born in the United States. I, I don't see how one could claim... He's going to be our next president. Who should run Twitter? Richard Spencer, Vosh, Andrew Anglin, Jonathan Greenblatt. Uh, how about none of the above? And Richard says, this guy's losing his mind in real time. I don't think he's losing his mind. Just because you tweet, those who want power are the ones who least deserve it. I don't think that's indicating you're losing your mind. Richard Spencer retweets, Musk has no vision. He's like Dave Rubin in the sense that he has no thoughts, only ideas. Musk has increased accomplished so much in his life. He is making Twitter so much better. All right, Tesla is about the world's most influential, powerful car company. His, his base rocket program has been incredibly successful. How on earth do you argue that uh, this guy has no vision, that he's like Dave Rubin? Richard Spencer says, I, for one, welcome our new Saudi Arabian digital overlords. Oh, yes. If uh, Elon Musk watches the World Cup with Jared Kushner and some Arab sheikhs, that definitely means that Saudi Arabia is really running things. So Richard says, I think Jared Kushner and others have found the next Trump. So Elon Musk was at the World Cup with Jared Trump. Tide is turning fast for the Fauciest, says Elon Musk. I don't agree with that critique by Elon Musk. It's uh, it's not the end of the world. All right, let's have a look at uh, this Twitter thread. I'm happy that we've entered the Musk era. It's a full revelation of the complete emptiness of the right. Is the Musk era really a full revelation of the emptiness of the right? I, I don't see that at all. Yeah, fun to witness the sanctimonious scolds apoplectic. Compare the actions of the PayPal mafia, meaning Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, to someone like George Soros, who's cultured, superior, and deserving of the moniker, most, what, Motu, most influential man of the world. Uh, George Soros' plans and bills slowly makes the world bend to his will. The weird, ugly libertarians are a little different than their fanboys on 4chan. So... Elon Musk and uh, Peter Thiel are just nothing because they don't come across as cultured superior as uh, George Soros. I think there are a lot of things far more important than how you come across. Right? And that is what you accomplish. Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, for all their flaws, are systematically making the world a better place. David Sachs says, in their zeal to attack Elon Musk as a free speech hypocrite, the corporate media has defended impersonation, the right to post swastikas embedded in the Jewish flag, and online stalking and doxing. By all means, let's keep going with this. Wow. Richard says, you guys really own the lips tonight. Banned a liberal journalist from Twitter, no less. You must be part of the right-wing elite. I've heard so much about. All right, I'm not in favor of Elon Musk banning all these mainstream journalists. What Trump promised, Biden seeks to deliver in his own way. This is a good point. That's why I don't think that uh, Joe Biden is an absolute disaster. In some ways, he's an absolute disaster, but Biden's also done a lot of good things. What Trump promised, 
Biden seeks to deliver in his own way. Donald Trump pledged to fix U.S. infrastructure as president vowed to take on China, bulk up American manufacturing, said he'd reduce the budget deficit, make the wealthy pay their fair share of taxes. Yet after two years as president, Joe Biden is acting on these promises. He jokes that he's created an infrastructure decade after Trump merely managed a near parody of infrastructure weeks. His legislative victories are not winning him votes from Trump loyalists or boosting his own approval ratings. They reflect a major pivot in how the government interacts with the economy at a time when many Americans fear a recession and broader national decline. Gone are blanket tax cuts, no more unfettered faith in free trade with non-democracies. Biden White House has committed more than $1.7 trillion to the place that a mix of government aid, focused policies, and bureaucratic expertise can deliver long-term growth that lifts up the middle class. This reverses the past administration's view that cutting regulations and taxes boosted investments by businesses that flowed downward to workers. So Biden is gambling the federal bureaucracy can successfully implement and deliver on his promises after he leaves office. Okay, that is an interesting perspective and not an absurd one. Okay, Richard Spencer tweets, someone has to say it, Elon Musk has lied for 27 years about his credentials. Oh, no. Does not have a BS in physics or any technical field, did not get into a PhD program, dropped out in 1995, and was illegal. Later, investors quietly arranged a diploma, but not in science. Uh, And I think that's terribly important. When you compare the magnitude of the things that Elon Musk has accomplished, he's exaggerated his resume. I don't think... uh, That's particularly a big deal. Let's get back to this Bloomberg article. In the early afternoon, a team from Horizon Media stopped by. Horizon is one of the largest ad agencies in the world, chaperoned to brands such as Capital One and Burger King. Also in attendance were two ad execs from Twitter, as well as two major fans of Musk's. Investor and podcaster Jason Calacanis, and inexplicably his mother, Mae Musk. Hey, no, no, stop that. Bloody hell. My clients knew that I was going to meet you, Goingsberg said, and they all asked, is he going to get Donald Trump back on the platform? Musk had already proclaimed publicly that he didn't believe in permanent Twitter bans. So here was a moment for a careful response. Perhaps an explanation of how the company planned to guard against the former president's predilection for misinformation and incitements of violence upon his return. Instead, Musk replied that it was the question he was getting from everyone, too, and sitting there composed a tweet on his iPhone. If I had a dollar for every time someone asked me if Trump is coming back on this platform, Twitter would be minting money. He paused, surveyed the room, and asked everyone whether he should post it. One of the Twitter ad execs strenuously objected. Musk laughed and posted the tweet anyway, and fired the dissenter later that week. Twitter, going on two months into the new Elon era, continues to operate entirely at his whim. His antics extend the chaos in the courts, in the media, and on Twitter itself of the seven-month legal battle that resulted in his purchasing the platform for $44 billion dollars. Okay, so what we're talking about here is a different conception of the self. So the author thinks that the one true right conception of the self is that we should pursue a buffered identity, 
that human beings are basically good, that uh, we should be highly reflexive, that we should take into account every single person who could be affected by what we say and do, that uh, we should be you know, highly self-regulating, in effect, that we should conduct ourselves as courtiers at court. Right? That is the liberal left conception of the self, that the self is buffered, meaning that what goes on next door doesn't necessarily need to affect me. But if you, you know, want to go transsexual or you want to go gay or you, know, you want to be into S&M, that doesn't affect me. That there aren't uh, currents of, of evil or goodness in the world, but we're all strategic, autonomous, buffered selves, basically good, and that we should pursue highly reflexive lives, you know, constantly asking what will be the consequences of what I say and do on other people, right? That's like courtier morality. So you live your life at court and you have to constantly modulate and adjust what you say and do to your constantly changing position at court and constantly changing power dynamics and how will this affect other people at court, right? That's courtier morality. That's liberal left morality as opposed to traditional aristocratic morality where each man is king of his own castle. If he wants to sit back in his own castle and say what's on his mind, right, he can do so. He doesn't have to take into account that every single variable of who might be affected. Luke, you have criticized the recklessness of Biden's response to the Ukraine conflict. Any ideas for holding his administration accountable? No ideas. And that's not me. That's John Mearsheim. He says it's he just can't conceive how we can get out of this mess because both sides are now so entrenched. So John Mearsheimer can't conceive of how we get out of this mess. Well, actually, this is how Mearsheimer conceives that we get out of this mess, that Russia eventually will use a nuclear weapon on Ukraine, and then as a result, the Biden administration will be so frightened by the prospect of nuclear war that they will then force Ukraine to accept some sort of negotiated settlement and end to the war. So that is John Mearsheimer's prediction. Uh, how we get out of the war. I've... So Mearsheimer says, you know, short of that, it, it's too late because both sides have become so deeply invested in this conflict. So courtier morality is like liberal left morality. So highly reflexive, meaning that you consider you know, how everyone sees and interprets and views and experiences and suffers or benefits from everything you say and do. So you're constantly taking you know, a, a wide view, you're constantly trying to see yourself from an outside perspective, as opposed to the traditional conception of the self, where a man's home is his castle, and a man says, you know, what's on his mind or on his heart, and he doesn't have to constantly moderate and mediate and conciliate with you know, everything he says. So the traditional conception of the self is that we have a porous identity, so that what you do affects me, that there are currents of good and evil in the world. Human nature is not basically good. And because of that, traditional ways of organizing the self, the family, and the community overwhelmingly tend to be superior to newfangled ways of organizing said groups. Twitter, going on two months into the new Elon era, continues to operate entirely at his whim. His antics extend the chaos. In the okay, we think that uh, Twitter runs entirely at Elon Musk's whim. But guess what? In the end, Elon Musk is not the boss of Twitter. You know who is the boss of Twitter? 
the situation, reality, right? Reality bites. So in some circumstances, yeah, Elon Musk whims can rule. Just like I'm doing a show now, very exciting, you know, 15 live viewers. And I feel like I can you know, say or do anything on my mind. I feel like I'm running the show. But in the final analysis, I'm a guest in this home. All sorts of things could happen. We could immediately shut down this show. So right now, I feel like I am the boss of this show. And I feel like my whims are running this show. But, you know, who's really the boss of this show? The situation. And the situation could change right now. Someone could walk in this door right in front of me. And the show will end just like that. So Elon Musk, right? It looks like his whims are running Twitter. But Elon Musk is also vulnerable to situations. What is going to determine how successful Elon Musk is with Twitter? What's going to determine how successful the Biden administration will be? What's going to determine how successful Donald Trump's attempts are to regain the American presidency? Events, my dear boy, events. In some situations and circumstances, the Biden administration will be ill-suited. In other situations and circumstances, Donald Trump will become the next president of the United States. In some situations and circumstances, tens of thousands of people could watch this live stream. In other circumstances and situations, you know, I might never live stream again. All right? We, we may feel like we have autonomy and that's, that's a good feeling, right, that we have free will and, and we do usually have considerable you know, room to maneuver and to create our own lives. But there's God in the world, or if you don't like the word and concept of God, there's reality, right? There's reality out there and reality is not going to bend for you or me. So there are constantly events and circumstances and situations that are going to obviate you know, all the best laid plans of my cement. So we don't know what circumstances and situations are operating on Elon Musk right now. It does look like uh, he may need to step down as, as Twitter CEO. He may need to pay more attention to Tesla. All right. His investors right, may you know, demand certain changes. So people on the outside think, oh, Joe Biden, president of the United States, has ultimate power. Elon Musk, you know, his whim rules. But uh, Joe Biden. Right. He has to deal with changing situations or circumstances that moderate and delineate and reduce his capacity for action. You know who's ultimately in charge of uh, Joe Biden? The situation. Right? The situation is the boss, and the situation is constantly changing as events constantly change. So in some situations, I am cool, calm, and collected. In some situations, I may sound helpful, I may sound sane, I may sound you know, compassionate and understanding and truth-seeking. Just change the situation like uh, when I flew to Gladstone, my bag was lost. I was not a happy camper Thursday night, last Thursday night, and uh, you know, people close to me thought I'd lose my temper. I didn't lose my temper. I didn't say anything mean to anyone. I was a perfect gentleman, but I was not happy. I was not cool, calm, and collected. I you know, came to my residence and I just took a shower and went to bed. Like, I just didn't want to really interact, deal with anyone. I just wanted to curl up in bed because I was discouraged and annoyed and ticked off and frustrated that my bag was missing and I was catastrophizing. 
and uh, I was not a happy camper. Then before 6 a.m. the next day, I get a call. They found my bag. They send a courier over with my bag. I'm in a much happier place after that. So I'm a very different person when my bag with my laptop and my other valuable belongings is missing. I'm a different person in those circumstances. Like if I, I'm paying for everything with my phone in Australia, right? You know, only about 10% of transactions are done by cash in Australia. But if all my you know, credit cards got uh, frozen, my bank account got frozen, right? I would not be a happy camper. And it may be through no fault of my own. Like I, I could be a victim of hacking, right? So no one gets to run their life for, on an ongoing basis, just according to their whims. We all have to conform and comport and struggle and deal with reality, including Elon Musk. Bloody hell. Here we go. No. Play now. Twitter, going on two months into the new Elon era, continues to operate entirely at his whim. His antics extend the chaos in the courts, in the media, and on Twitter itself of the seven-month legal battle that resulted in his purchasing the platform for $44 billion. Okay, a question from the chat. Should we fear that all the surveillance instruments in our homes will eventually betray us to the work of powers that be? No, I don't think we should live in fear. On the other hand, as much as possible we should try to conduct ourselves as though what we're saying and doing is published on the front page of the New York Times. So we shouldn't live in fear. We should try to behave like upstanding, respectable citizens who, if our words and ideas and, and actions were presented fairly on the front page of the New York Times, that they would garner the... You know, the minimal amount of opposition and the most amount of support. Now, would I assure you absolutely no chance that the surveillance instruments in your homes will eventually betray you to the white powers that be? Yeah, that's possible. That will happen probably on occasion. I, I don't think that we're you know, entering you know, Nazi or Soviet Union-style woke totalitarianism. I don't think that's ahead. Stopping by the woods on a snowy evening to see the live stream less traveled with medley. Calling a meme graphic of Alexa or like reporting on a family's homophobic comments. <laughs> so, yeah, you may not want to have Alexa, right? You may want to take some sensible precautions. Yes, I could leave on a missionary trip to Ethiopia next week. You know, any situation is possible. How do I like iOS 16.2? I don't have any complaints with iOS 16.2. Even in the privacy of our own homes? Yeah, generally speaking, even in the privacy of your own home, generally speaking, you should you know, preferably act as though if you know, some you know, unexpected stranger or for some reason what you're saying and doing is you know, publicized, that it will cause you a minimal amount of distress. So don't do illegal drugs. Don't do any type of sexual behavior that would be you know, looked askance upon by your community. Uh, don't watch pornography. Uh, you know, don't be a jerk, even in the privacy of your own home. 
Now, I'm not saying that I never act like a jerk. I'm not saying, you know, obsess over this. I'm saying use that idea of what you're saying and doing, you know, being publicized to the world to help you, not to hurt you, not to go crazy about it, not to, you know, become neurotic about it. And, and you know, obviously, do I live up to this perfectly? No, I, I'm sure I'm frequently saying and doing things that I'd be absolutely appalled to see on the front page of the New York Times. I just find that concept helpful. Uh, my sponsees frequently find that concept helpful, right? Every concept is helpful to some people in some situations. No concept, no idea, you know, no piece of advice, you know, works for everyone in, in all circumstances. So if I say something that is useful, like use it to the extent it's useful, if it ceases being useful, if it starts becoming harmful, then drop it. You know, what the hell? Just drop it. Twitter, going on two months into the new Elon era, continues to operate entirely at his whim. His antics extend the chaos. So I'm still taking my beef organ capsules every morning. Forty has crazy energy, must be all the beef organ supplement. No, I almost never drink coffee. I almost never consume caffeine. But because I was up at 1 a.m. watching the World Cup, got very little sleep last night, I had two packets of green tea this morning and a large coffee. It's called a... Uh, a large flat white with two sugars. That's what I ordered this morning. So I'm incredibly caffeinated and I'm almost never caffeinated. So caffeinated 40, like I think one, one recent uh, Sunday, which would have been Saturday American time, I was also caffeinated. So when you don't drink coffee very much and then you have a large cup, man, it still packs a punch. And the, the L-theanine in green tea, it doubles the length of your caffeine high. So instead of having that crazy caffeine energy for two hours, I find when I have the green tea with the L-theanine, I get that crazy coffee energy for six hours. So I've done a hard day's work and I've probably carried like two tons of, of fertilizer and I wanted to come home and uh, live stream about Elon Musk and related issues, talk to you. Like, you know, doing hard manual labor, I enjoyed it. Like, my boss is the best. My boss is very kind, very understanding. I was, like, listening to a book on Robert Moses almost all day in addition to some 12-step talks. But uh, now I want to come home and indulge myself, talk about my favorite topics with my favorite people. And then eventually there's going to come a knock on that door. And, you know, the live stream will have to end. I'll get back to you know, mixing with people or I may just hit the wall. The energy will run out at some point. I still have not fully processed the Dallas Cowboys loss, like in overtime, but a heartbreaker. Green tea, stronger down under because you're closer to China. <laughs> I can tell, Forty, you're bouncing off the walls. It's so good when you've got something powerful in your bullpen. It's like having a great reliever, right? you got a great reliever. Right, a guy who's you know, strongly likely to save the game. Right? You don't pitch him every game or his arm's going to get tired. Right? It's not going to have the same effect. But you have a great reliever in the bullpen. You just use him, say, once a week. Then he's going to be very strong. So I would say I typically have a cup of coffee about once every three weeks. And so... It just helps me, like, knowing I've got that in the bullpen, right? Because then I can have almost no sleep, have a big cup of coffee, 
and I'm good to go. I don't suffer the defects from that lack of sleep. But if I was doing coffee every day, I would not feel that, that same benefit. So I, you need to keep things. I need, feel like I need to keep certain things in the bullpen for an emergency you know, that will get me through the tough times. It's like just vacuumed a line. <laughs> what is my retention like with audiobooks? Uh, good question, John. And I don't know. I would have to... I'd have to leave that to you. So I'm constantly consuming audiobooks. Do you get a sense that I'm retaining anything, that I'm able to you know, integrate some of the things that I learn? Uh, I often listen to audiobooks when I'm doing other tasks. So yesterday, everyone was gone. So I finally got some alone time. And what an amazing test cricket match. So typically, most test cricket matches go five days and there's no result. Right? This test cricket match between the two top test cricket teams in the world. Number one ranked test cricket team in the world, Australia. Number two ranked team, South Africa. Right, They're playing at the Gabba in Brisbane. Right, Typically it goes five days. This was decided in two days. So yesterday was day number two, Australia won. So I just want to capture you know, the waning moments of this great test cricket match. And I also had not done my audio exercises. Go 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 No 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 So I don't tend to do those those voice exercises from Roger Love when other people are around but I got to do those voice exercises. At the same time, I was doing my positional strain. Oh, oh, oh. You know, strain, counter strain, positional release. So I was doing that, and I was doing my audio exercises and watching the test cricket match with the sound out. Uh, so I often do things simultaneously, like when I'm watching a sporting event, I'll typically watch it with the sound off and listening to an audio book or, or a podcast. So probably retain more if I wasn't doing something else. Like today, you know, I was sometimes helping customers. I was listening to the boss. I was, you know, making sure that I was, you know, putting the correct price on the fertilizer, that I was stacking things correctly, that I was watering the plants correctly while listening to this 50-hour audio book on uh, Robert Moses, a great uh, parks commissioner in, in New York City. So probably don't have the same retention recall as someone who wasn't you know, distracted by other tasks, but I think I get a substantial amount. But who knows, maybe I am deluded. What is my source for audiobooks? I love Audible. I subscribe to Audible. I have, have so many audiobooks. I think I have in my, in my library, I've got 113 titles. got The Power Broker about Robert Moses by Robert A. Caro. I've got The Conquering Tide. It's a trilogy on naval warfare in the Pacific during World War II. Raven Rock by Garrett M. Graf. That's about America's preparations for the nuclear war. Foundation by Peter Ackroyd about the history of England up until the 15th century. Britain at Bay by Alan Alport, the story of uh, Britain in World War II. Verbal Judo, updated edition. Confidence Man by Maggie Haverman about Donald Trump, the 9-11 Commission Report, Masters of the Air, about uh, American Air Force during World War II in Europe, The Divider by Peter Baker and Susan Glazer about Donald Trump, Iron Kingdom, A History of the Prussians by Christopher Clark, Pacific Crucible, War at Sea in the Pacific, that's the 
first book of the Ian Toll trilogy, Top of the Morning by Brian Stelter, about uh, morning TV news, Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes, Scientist by Richard Rhodes, Making the Atomic Bomb by uh, Richard Rhodes. So Scientist is about E.O. Wilson, Days of Fire by Peter Baker. That's about the relationship between George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. I've got Social by Matthew Lieberman, which I haven't read yet, The Passage of Power by Robert Caro about Lyndon Baines Johnson, The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy-Paul, A Man in Fall by Tom Wolfe, Reclaiming History, Debunking Nefarious, uh, Stupid Conspiracy Theories about the Assassination of John F. Kennedy, The Mirror and the Light, the trilogy by Hilary Mantel, Aftermath about what happened to Germany after World War II. i got Stephen Cockin's first two volumes on Stalin, Effective Communication Skills, it's a teaching company course. Your Public Persona, Self-Presentation, Everyday Life, another teaching company course. Middle March by George Eliot, listen to that multiple times. All the Pretty Horses, novel by Cormac McCarthy. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon, that's like 80 hours. Empire of Pain, about the Sackler family. The Brain's Way of Healing. So I think, you know, I think I retained some things. All right, so I think my Audible subscription costs about $15 a month. The only thing we're missing right now is John Wolf. I just find my retention there with audiobooks. I just isn't there. Okay, I guess people vary. So, yeah, I got 113 titles. I like listen, listening. Many of these. So at night, I just leave an audible book running all night. I don't like to be alone with my thoughts, generally speaking. My mind is like a dangerous neighborhood that, generally speaking, I should not enter alone. So I don't want to ruminate because if I wasn't running an audible book at night, I, I think, 40 you really screwed up your life. You're 56. You, you, you don't have a family. You, you, know, you don't have significant savings. You, know, you don't have this sterling career. You, you know, should pay attention to how success works on YouTube and follow the rules so that you're more successful. Uh, you know, why don't you have a wife? You know, why don't you get your life together? I'd be kind of berating and flagellating myself. But if I have an audible book running, I get to kind of take a break from from that part of myself. And then when I get up in the morning and I start doing the right things, the cold shower, you know, the 12 step talks, you know, talking to sponsees, the meditation, right, then I get my day off to a good start. I'm in a, usually in a positive frame of mind. But at night, right, when I'm in bed and I can't sleep and I'm getting annoyed, then my, my mind typically, typically starts uh, flagellating me. So I find it helpful to to leave an audible book running, but I've had girlfriends that say, you know, why do you have to keep stimulating yourself all the time? Are there any supplements or prayers to help with retention of audiobooks? So I think one tip is, you know, choose topics that are really interesting to you. So if you listen to an audio book that excites you, I think you'll be much more likely to retain it. Second, Talk about the books you're reading with other people who are interested in what you have to say. So I am more incentivized to retain from audiobooks and everything that I experience and read because I will share it with you on here and then you'll critique me and you'll challenge me and I don't want to look like an idiot so my ego gets involved 
So I want to be as sharp and useful and helpful and decent and truth-seeking and kind and honorable as possible so I don't look like a total jerk. So surely you have people in your life who might be interested in the audiobooks that you're listening to. So I find that helps. Also, I sometimes write down notes, handwriting. So I like to journal. Uh, so what I usually do when I start journaling is I write down all the things that I've done right that day or lately because my mind naturally starts you know, beating myself down. And then I write about all the things that I'm grateful for. And so I'm in, I'm in Tenham Sands, Australia right now. And I first visited here in 1982. It was February 1982. And that was the first time I'd gone to a newsstand and started looking at Playboy and Penthouse. So that kind of really kicked off my, my porn addiction. And I was 16 years of age. And I was just kind of entering this whole new exciting world of pornography. Then I came back here at age 18 after I graduated high school. I lived here for a year, and uh, I thought I was going to lose my virginity, but that never even came close. But I did earn a good amount of money. I read a lot of books, and I thought I had this you know, really bright future, and I was like boasting to people about all the things that I had accomplished in my life, that I was going to be famous and influential and powerful and rich, and you know, women would be throwing themselves at me, and I just had this grandiose vision of my future. Then I came back here in 1989, like December of 1989, after I'd been ill for for a year and a half with chronic fatigue syndrome, and my life had just collapsed around me. But I discovered Judaism, discovered Dennis Prager. I got my parents to send me five Dennis Prager lectures, and I thought, I'm going to start keeping the Sabbath. I started keeping the Sabbath again in December of 1989. I, I think, okay, I'm probably going to convert to Judaism. And so I kind of see light at the end of the tunnel. I'm going to remake my life in alignment with God's laws. I'm going to join God's chosen people. I'm going to dedicate myself to a life of Torah and mitzvahs and good works and align myself with the Hakadosh Bahu, the master of the universe. And so I saw, ah, you know, Judaism, religion, ethical monotheism, this is going to be the way out of this mess that I've created for myself. But I was just so weak. I could do so very little in the three months I was here back in 1989. So I'm just kind of journaling about the, the, the sharp contrast between my grandiose conceptions of myself in 1984 and the total crash 1989 when my life had just collapsed around me. Then I came back here in year 2000 for two weeks. And this was kind of at the height of my fame. And I thought, ah, you know, I'm going to be this powerful, influential, famous, and, and eventually rich uh, blogger. You know, I'm the, I'm the new face of journalism. You know, I'm doing something innovative. I'm going to take my talents. I'm going to transfer them, you know, outside of blogging on the pornography industry. But I'd just seen a psychiatrist who diagnosed me with narcissistic personality disorder. And I knew it was true. I knew it was accurate. I knew that I was in over my head. I knew I needed to get back to therapy. I knew that I had many delusions of grandeur. Then I was back here in 2014 when I was carrying over $50,000 in credit card debt and I hardly made any videos for about two years because I felt so beaten down and discouraged by life. And with over $50,000 in credit card debt in the three and a half weeks that I was here in 2014, I did not spend $1. Not, not $1. I was that you know, careful and tight with my money because of you know, this overwhelming weight of credit card debt. Then I came back here a year ago, and I'd retired all my credit card debt uh, three years previous. 
had money in the bank. But uh, how else am I different now from, from a year ago? Maybe I'll just keep that, that private. Okay, wow, we've got an active chat. Let's see what's uh, going on. Are there any prayers or supplements or meditation to help with retention? So for me as a vegetarian, yeah, beef organ capsules help. Uh, Modafinil. Yeah, Modafinil definitely helps with retention. Right. Uh, Modafinil, you can just Google it. M-O-D-A-F-I-N-I-L. Changed my life when I got on this in something like June of 2013. So it makes you want to learn. It's it's also known as boss's best friend. It also tends to minimize negative emotions. Uh, it uh, kind of gives you a happy, you know, low-key euphoria and gives you confidence and kind of effectively makes you smarter because you just want to learn. You just you know have this insatiable curiosity. Also helps you lose weight because you're so interested in learning that it distracts you from, from eating. Also, I find a cold shower, uh, regular cold showers kind of wakes me up, makes me more alive and alert and better able to retain what's going on around me, uh, avoiding things that drag me down, such as you know, pornography, uh, food that has a negative effect on me, people that have a negative effect on me. So if I minimize that, if I minimize the time that I'm hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, then I'm also better able to retain. I'm better able to retain things in the morning rather than the afternoon and the evening. And the more intense what I'm listening to is for me, like the more it speaks to me, the more curious I am, the better I'm able to retain. And then the more people that I'm going to speak to about what I'm learning, then the more incentive and the more invested I am in retaining what I'm listening to. Are you stuck with whoever the reader is? Well, often, such as with Middlemarch by George Eliot, you can get various versions. Um, have I ever read Mark Twain's What is Man? I don't think I have. Why do I have to keep stimulating myself all the time? <laughs> because my mind is a dangerous neighborhood that, generally speaking, I should not visit alone. That's why I have sponsors and sponsees and people I call in my various 12-step programs and close friends and, and these shows. Remember Gallery Magazine? Yes, I do. And we and Velvet. God forbid, God forbid. My father had a good excuse for possessing the Gallery Magazine I came across at the age of nine. Oi, that can so distort you. I first came my friend introduced me to pornography at age eight. And I'll never forget the power the intense sensations and how it transfixed me. It frightened me how attracted I was to what I was seeing. It frightened me so much that I didn't look at it again for about until I was 16. So I think I first saw it about age eight or nine, and then I was so frightened by its effect on me, I, I stayed away from it until age for another seven years, even though my, many of my friends were you know, indulging in it. How am I getting modafinil in Australia? Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that. A cold shower is a part of the no-fat lifestyle. They can be, but you don't have to use them for no-fat. Because we are so frequently like dopamine addicts, right? We have to reset ourselves, you know, get out of the you know easy access to dopamine overload. And so exercise, cold showers, 
turning off electronic devices sometimes, just going for a walk without any stimulation. Uh, these are all tips in the great book, Dopamine Nation. You can find wonderful interviews with a psychiatrist author on YouTube, Dopamine Nation, if this topic interests you. Oh, happy Hanukkah. And uh, Half Galician is back. So the, the whole gang is here. Glib is here. John, Moral Outrage, Jim Bowden, Reasonable and Responsible. The gang is back in town. So I think the closest synagogue to me here is about 400 miles away. They found that the fountains were turned on and off by ship's pilot wheels. No, 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 no,
for something greater than his own financial net worth. What do I think about Alison Chablow getting her gig pulled? So she is the woman in England who wrote songs about the Holocaust. I don't have an opinion. She was one of the finest musical talents your chat has ever seen. Yeah, there was, I haven't yet ponied up to subscribe to the Financial Times. Like when I tell people how I spend probably 150 a month on news subscriptions, they, they think it's crazy, but I haven't yet ponied up for the Financial Times. Maybe I will. It does seem to be a ton of compelling content on the Financial Times, including that column by Janae Ganache about how the primary reason for not using Twitter is that it is low status. I mean, that is bold. Since then, Musk has sacked more than half of Twitter's workforce, floated, rescinded, and refloated an idea to verify user accounts for $8 a pop, publicly linked to a bogus news story about the violent attack on the husband of the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. Okay, so many news stories in the Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, on foxnews.com, NBC News are bogus, right? But just this one story, right? Elon Musk just gets flagellated again and again and again for that. What about all the people who link to mainstream media hysteria over you know, Trump's ties with, with Russia, how Trump was a Russian agent, or how Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction. Right? Millions of people linked to these stories, they don't get flagellated with linking to bogus news stories. So certain bogus news stories are kosher, and other bogus news stories are trafe. Alienated more than half of Twitter's advertisers, forcing them to pause spending, have I read Daniel Goldhagen in the last 10 years? I don't believe I have ever read Daniel Goldhagen. There's nothing about him that, that uh, compels me to read Daniel Goldhagen. I did listen to one of his speeches. Alison Chablow is our Lana Del Rey. E. Michael Jones tweeted a question to Jordan Peterson to ask Jews if they worship uh, God or Moloch, the devil. Well, depending on your perspective, you know, some Jews would worship God and some Jews would worship, you know, forces of darkness. It all depends on what you regard as divine and what you regard as coming from the Sitra Acra, the forces of darkness, right? Jews, like Christians, are a mixed bunch, right? Some really believe in God, some are good people, right? Some are hardworking, and some of them bring their problems with them. Some of them bring drugs. Some of them bring crime, some of them are rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. And promised to reinstate not only the former president, but a rogues gallery of right-wing troublemakers who were previously banned for spreading misinformation and fomenting violence. And he's wrapped it all in overheated indignation about free expression. So Hakulishan says, I find Daniel Goldhagen one of the greatest writers I've ever come across. He's a Harvard scholar. I just find him loathsome. So I don't care how eloquent he is. There are a lot of things that I value more than glibness. Daniel Goldhagen is a Harvard professor. Why would you reflexively dismiss his books? The same reason that uh, elite book reviewers reflexively dismiss his books, right? Because they're trash. 
you can be a Harvard professor and just relentlessly turn it out trash. So there's nothing inherent in being a Harvard professor that makes you wise or that uh, inherently instills your work with uh, value, right? I've, you know, I've read articles about his work. It's playing to the choir, right? It's so easy to get ahead by playing to your in-group's sense of victimization. So very easy to get ahead in Jewish life by playing to Jews' sense of victimization, easy to get ahead in Black life by playing to Blacks' sense of victimization, easy to you know, get ahead in Mexican-American life by playing to Mexican-American sense of victimization. Uh, these race hustlers, like these people who play to their in-group sense of victimization, Generally speaking, they don't provide the kind of disinterested scholarship that uh, normally compels my attention. I've never read him. Yeah, I've heard him speak, and I've read enough articles about him. You're doing what you... No. I hate when other people you know, claim that they know uh, somebody's body of work when they don't. I, I don't know Kanye West's body of music. I have no interest in Kanye West rap music, right? I have no interest in people who are competing in the victimization Olympics, like uh, Daniel Goldhagen. I just have no interest. I haven't read the collected works or any works by Al Sharpton, but I'm not interested in the the thinking of Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson. Right? Daniel Goldhagen is the, the Jewish Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson. Nobody I respect has you know, published an essay making the case for why one should read uh, Daniel Goldhagen. Even leaking internal documents through a pair of friendly journalists in a release he dubbed the Twitter file. He is a scholar, not a performer, says Half Galician. You're sounding like a drunk peasant. Okay, a scholar means that you have created innovative work, that you have advanced the world of knowledge. Where has Daniel Goldhagen advanced the world of knowledge? He hasn't done any original research. He hasn't made any important original findings. Right? He is a polemicist who appeals to you know, the, the lowest parts of our natures, you know, appealing to that, that victimization complex. Now, what is innovative, original, important? Where has he advanced the boundaries of knowledge? He hasn't. Luke is too status-obsessed, kind of sad and cringe. Is there anyone who's not status-obsessed? What am I talking about? I said very clearly what I'm talking about. Name some scholarly accomplishment of Daniel Goldhagen. Where has he unveiled new knowledge about the topics that he talks about? Like What has Daniel Goldhagen presented that people didn't already know. Right? He's just the Al Sharpton of the Jews. ...and hyped to his 120 million okay, misinformator of the U.S. House of Representatives, alienated more than half of Twitter's advertisers, forcing them to pause spending, and promised to reinstate... Okay, half says, hard to argue about someone with such passion about something he's never familiarized himself with. I ask you a very simple question. Name one... Scholarly Achievement by Daniel Goldhagen. Just name one. Where has he advanced our understanding, our 
body of knowledge about a topic. What is innovative and groundbreaking in his scholarship? I'll sit here, I'm waiting. Okay, it's been several minutes since I asked you that question and you still can't come up with anything. So why can't you come up with a single example of how Daniel Goldhagen has extended our understanding of the world, where he has made contributions to our understanding of the topics that he writes about? You can't. Yes, a nice little Jewish argument to keep us warm on the first night of Hanukkah. Not only the former president, but a rogues gallery of right-wing troublemakers who were previously banned for spreading misinformation and fomenting violence. So, Art Galician says Daniel Goldhagen is a scholar. I asked for an example of his scholarship. Where has he advanced the body of knowledge? Art Galician answers, that's a non sequitur. How is that a non sequitur? Name a single scholarly advancement done by Daniel Goldhagen. You can't do it. Why can't you do it? Because he hasn't done anything. He hasn't advanced our understanding of the topics he writes about. He just appeals to the worst in us. And he's wrapped it all in overheated indignation about free expression, even leaking internal documents through a pair of friendly journalists in a release he dubbed the Twitter Files and hyped to his 100... half Galician says he is a scholar, but a moral reckoning is not a work of history. I'm still waiting for you to name his scholarly accomplishments. Like, where is he advanced things? You can't do it. You missed the entire point of the book. I'm just asking you to name a scholarly accomplishment. You claim Daniel Goldhagen's a scholar. Name one scholarly accomplishment of Daniel Goldhagen. 20 million followers with a popcorn emoji. This is a battle for the future of civilization, Musk tweeted. If free speech is lost, even in America, tyranny is all that lies ahead. So, Elon Musk viewing this as a battle for the future of civilization, it sounds hyperbolic, it sounds overdone, it sounds grandiose, it sounds narcissistic, but I think there's enough truth to what he's saying. It's important to to have more free speech on Twitter, to allow more voices on, on Twitter. I mean, what he's doing is incredibly important, makes the world a better place. Yeah, where is the subtle interpretation of a canonical text? <laughs> Has there ever been such a Shakespearean Silicon Valley tale? An iconoclast consumed... And Hafgalishan says his findings are not political. They are vilified, so there's no money in his findings. Oh, he gets flown around the world and paid tens of thousands of dollars... He has earned hundreds of thousands of dollars in speaking fees and from selling his books, right? Well over a million dollars, right? He is making bank because if you can attain elite credentials such as, you know, graduating from Harvard and you tell an in-group that, uh, you know, they're victims, they've been sorely victimized, that it's just horrible what out-groups have done to your in-groups, there's a tremendous market for that. If I just sat here every night and I told you about how you were being victimized, you were being screwed over, the elites are holding you down, and I'm fighting for you, I am on your side, 
because the mainstream media is screwing you over. The elites are screwing you over. The banks are screwing you over. Wall Street is screwing you over. The teachers and the professors and you know, the elite institutions in, in the world are screwing you over. The non-governmental organizations are screwing you over. Fauci is screwing you over. The CDC is screwing you over. The FDA is screwing you over. There is an enormous appetite for that. I, I could have 100 times my audience if I just came in here every day, played to your sense of victimization, and I told you how you're being screwed over, but I'm fighting for you, right? Easy, easy, easy to tell people, to tell an in-group that they are victims. And sometimes people are victims. It's all a matter of what you want to focus on. Everybody, every individual, every group can easily assemble a highly compelling case for why they're victims. Germans can do it. Jews can do it. Blacks can do it. The French can do it. The English can do it. The Japanese can do it. Everybody can come up with a case for why they're victimized. And there is a tremendous appetite in almost all in-groups for having someone with elite credentials tell them how badly they've been victimized. There's no business like shower business. By occasional bouts of mad, leer-like outbursts, whose only impediment to expanding his empire is his own conspicuous character. The visionary behind Tesla and SpaceX should be basking in the adulation of a society grateful for his contributions to low-emission transportation and space exploration. Well, uh, some people want things more than basking in the admiration of a society for his production of vehicles with low emissions and uh, space exploration, right? Some people have higher goals, higher desires, than uh, basking in the admiration of society. The strength of the Maccabees in the pursuit of refusing to read something and instead accept hearsay. Says half deletion, the elites want to circumcise me. I honestly have no idea what Luke is talking about. Yes, it's terribly complicated to uh, name a scholarly achievement by Daniel Goldhagen. I'm burdened by having read the works in question, and yet you've read the works in question and you can't name a single you know, scholarly contribution. Luke is comfortable in his passionate ignorance. Yes, asking you a question to name a contribution. When Twitter was first announced, Elon Musk buying Twitter, I assume, I remember the reason people were saying to join was because ex-celebrity was on it. And I heard rumors they were paying slabs. Yeah. Yet he can't resist the attention that comes from shock tweeting, no matter the... Uh, maybe he has an agenda other than the liberal left secular humanist agenda. Right? Not everyone conceives of the self or a public discourse or a Western civilization in the same way as the writers for Bloomberg ramifications for his companies, legal bills, and personal reputation. Longtime colleagues say he struggles with self-reflection and has an inability to take constructive feedback. Oh, so name me someone who doesn't struggle with those things. Uh, do, do you love constructive feedback? You just like welcome constructive feedback 24 seven. Uh, do you struggle with seeing yourself as other people see you? Most people struggle with these things. Or tolerate criticism. At the perpetually fragile franchise that is Twitter, 
The result has been something close to disaster. He's engulfed the company in haphazard cost-cutting and picked a fight with Apple. Advertisers have fled. Well, sometimes there are important things we need to do in life. And they're painful and they're awkward. And the only way that we can make progress towards these painful, awkward things we need to do is in a haphazard fashion. Uh, it is better to make haphazard progress than no progress at all. Uh, it's better, apparently, for Elon Musk to make haphazard progress towards reducing costs for Twitter, opening up free expression on Twitter, than to do nothing at all. It's better to do important things awkwardly and haphazardly than to uh, not do them at all. Uh, being smooth, uh, looking like you're fully in control is not always the most important thing. I think Joe Biden was right to get us out of Afghanistan. The way he did it was awkward. It didn't make America look good. It wasn't cool karma collected. It was the right thing to do. It was good that Joe Biden got us out of Afghanistan, even if it was awkward and haphazard. There frequently, when it comes to important things, you know, 10 other things that are far more important than whether or not you're haphazard. Half Gleeson says that Daniel Goldhagen's prose is precise and sharp. Yes, it is. He is an excellent writer. He's an excellent speaker. He's a very compelling intellectual. Right? I mean, I, I was at university. There were so many compelling Marxists who, who wrote and speak, spoke so eloquently. I have found glibness is usually in indirect proportion to profundity. So profundity, you have to put things in context. You have to take into account the historical situation. All right. It's not nearly as smooth as the glib. But the glib are really important, and the important are really glib. High-profile users such as musician Elton John, screenwriter Shonda Rhimes, and model Gigi Hadid have all noisily departed the platform. Oh, no, Elton John, Shonda Rhimes. I mean, her work is so moronic. I mean, has she ever produced anything that even reaches an audience with an average IQ of 100? Who cares if these people are no longer on Twitter? Hey. Citing an increase in misinformation, racism, and other hateful content. Okay. What counts as misinformation, what counts as racism, and what counts as hateful is entirely subjective. There's no objective understanding of these things, yet this Bloomberg mainstream media presentation just assumes what it's talking about is objective truth that has nothing to do with perspective or situation. Right? These are just completely subjective categories that have zero objective meaning. Tesla's stock has fallen by half since the saga began. It didn't have to be this way. Bloomberg Businessweek interviewed dozens of former employees and partners, some of whom were privately impressed with Musk and his sincere interest in grasping the issues facing Twitter before being repelled by his public behavior. They describe a leader fully capable of charm who deeply understands the service he's trying to fix, but is so addicted to its regular injections of ego gratification that he often sets the whole thing aflame. 
Musk himself, of course, disagrees with that characterization. Okay, so if he is setting the current liberal, secular, humanist you know, worldview aflame, uh, the, the only explanation offered by the writer of this piece is that you know, his, his lower self, you know, his ego, his primitive self, right, his uncultured self, uh, the self that has not been formed by the left liberal secular humanist mindset is expressing itself, that his id is expressing itself. Oh, how, how, how terrible. Let's listen to that again. Who deeply understands the service he's trying to fix, but is so addicted to its regular injections of ego gratification that he often sets the whole thing aflame. Musk himself... Sometimes things need to be set aflame. Sometimes it is good to burn things up. Sometimes preservation is a worse outcome than destruction. So Elon Musk is destroying the secular, humanist, left, liberal, elite consensus that ran Twitter. He is setting it aflame. And I say, L'chaim, hurrah, let's go. Yashikowak, good on you, mate. Of course, disagrees with that characterization. The proof will be in the pudding, he wrote in an email to Bloomberg Businessweek. These are early days. Obviously, Twitter is working fine with far fewer people. We have reduced hate speech and bot troll activity by roughly one-third, while significantly... Okay, so I don't believe in hate speech. Elon Musk may not believe in hate speech. You may not believe in gay marriage. You may not believe in the word gay. All right? But we still have to live in reality. And so we have to communicate with people who believe in all sorts of things that we don't believe. So just because we sometimes may use language and moral categories that we don't believe in, right, doesn't make us hypocritical or losers or dishonest, all right? On the one hand, we want to say what we believe, but on the other hand, we want to be effective. We want to take into account other people's perceptions. So I sometimes refer to moral teachings, moral beliefs, moral distinctions, uh, terminologies such as, you know, hate speech or homophobia or Islamophobia that I don't believe are real categories, but I still have to exist in the real world. So for people for whom these are real moral distinctions, people for whom, you know, definitions of words that I believe are absolute nonsense, but they're real to them, right, I'm going to use language and concepts that I don't believe in to communicate and to make my way in reality. I, I don't need to say what I truly believe in every situation increasing daily users so twitter is actually doing better it's fitting that musk's official arrival at twitter's headquarters right before his deal closed started with a joke he walked into the lobby at 10th and market streets in san francisco carrying a half collation says luke doesn't like it when jews examine christianity do i not like it i mean if uh if someone just has a reflexive hatred of Jews or of Christians or of Christianity or of the New Testament or of the Talmud or the, the Dallas Cowboys, I don't find reflexive you know, hatred for certain religious texts or certain religious groups. I don't find that edifying, usually. Like, I'm a human being. Sometimes I engage in it. Sometimes I enjoy engaging it with other people. Generally speaking, I prefer disinterested scholarly pursuit of truth. 
whether it's by Jews or non-Jews. A bathroom sink, a stunt orchestrated so he could tweet to his followers, entering Twitter HQ, let that sink in. How should a Jew not reflexively hate the New Testament? Uh, perhaps by extending your empathy to other people, to not just try to see the world as they see the world, but try to sense how they experience the world. You can find Jewish scholars who find you know, great beauty and moral truth and profundity in uh, the New Testament. Uh, I, I think, generally speaking, we're, we're better off you know, trying to extend our ability to empathize and to see things from other, other points of view. So put yourself in the particular time and place of the writers. Uh, this was you know, two, approximately 2,000 years ago. You know, understand the time, the place, the, the context, who they were, what their audience was, what their mission was, you know, what were the probably underlying facts that they were dealing with, right? I just find trying to extend my empathy and understand, you know, why you know, some people find you know, this text absolutely life-changing and life-affirming and transformational and the, the ticket to salvation. I would rather extend my empathy rather than just like reflexively, you know, loathe the you know, religious texts and attitudes and theologies of outgroups. It was a reference to a meme where people punctuate their truth bombs with images of sinks in doorways. Employees found no reason to laugh. Not only had they spent months watching their new boss disparage the company he was planning to buy, but the company had also already frozen hiring, cut down on corporate... Okay, so half deletion reminds me of the reaction to Donald Trump. Remember, when Donald Trump in 2015 made his announcement that he was running for president, and he talked about how uh, Mexican immigrants bring their problems with them. They bring drugs, they bring crime, they're rapists. And the conventional wisdom says Donald Trump called Mexicans rapists. No, he called particular Mexicans rapists. He didn't call all Mexicans rapists. So how Kalishan says, how could Jews not hate a book that uh, describes themselves as uh, killers and a synagogue of Satan? That's a couple of verses in, in the New Testament. There are you know, a dozen, two dozen, three dozen, depending on how you view it, of you know, very anti-Jewish verses in the New Testament. But there are also you know, other depictions of Jews in the New Testament. So you can take the most heinous text in the New Testament from a Jewish perspective, and you can fixate on that. You can take the most heinous words that somebody says, you can take the most heinous things that someone's done, and you can just fixate on the worst of individuals, of communities, of religions, of religious texts, or you can try to have perspective. So if you watch the news, you read the news, it's usually about taking you know, one thing somebody said and done and just blowing it up, right? What you usually don't get in news is a sense of perspective. Elon Musk has said so many ridiculous, amateurish, juvenile things since he's taken over Twitter, but from my perspective, the biggest perspective, Twitter is a much better place because of Elon Musk. I don't fixate on the stupid individual decisions that Elon Musk has made. I primarily fixate on how Twitter is overall a better place for Elon Musk taking it over. 
So one can just focus on the most hateful sections of the New Testament with regard to Jews, or one can try to understand it in its historical context, how it has been applied down through history, and the very complicated Jewish-Christian alliance. So you can find plenty of very hateful texts about Christians within the Jewish tradition. You can find plenty of very hateful texts about Jews within the Christian tradition. Right? Generally speaking, everybody finds religions not their own, at best, ridiculous. And normally they find them you know, downright evil. Right? That's the normal human reaction to any religion, not one's own. Ridiculous at best. In all likelihood, if you speak honestly, you find other religions you know, downright evil and disturbing. Employees found no reason to laugh. Not only had they spent months watching their new boss disparage the company he was planning to buy, but the company had also already frozen hiring, cut down on corporate spending and travel. Okay, so Elon Musk disparaged the company he was going to buy. And that's not politic. Right? That's not how an elite is supposed to behave. It's supposed to walk softly. It's supposed to speak calmly and judiciously. But uh, there are different ways of approaching things. There are different ways of shaking things up and improving things. There, there are calm ways. There are haphazard ways. Right? It seems like uh, Trump has... Uh, Trump, Elon Musk, has probably really done something good. Okay, let's have a look at the chat. Luke, you are embarrassing yourself, frankly. I'm sure I am. I am just ignorant of the Gospels and of Goldhagen. So, Huffman, who do you think has spent more time studying the Gospels, you or me? Uh, my dad's a Christian theologian. Every day in my childhood from about age seven or eight until 11, I had to read 40 pages of dense Christian apologetics. I've listened to thousands of hours of Christian sermons. Now, my dad did two PhDs related to Christianity. I was raised immersed in Christianity. You really, you really think I'm ignorant of the Gospels? You really think that you spent, say, one-fiftieth the amount of time that I have with the Gospels? Give me a break. We can say there are good parts of the New Testament. What's good or what's bad in the New Testament depends upon your perspective and your agenda and your in-group identity. There aren't, you know, objectively good parts and bad parts of the New Testament. It all depends on your subjective perspective. Uh, Half Galatian says, we want the hateful, awful stuff uh, edited out. <laughs> you want to edit out the religious texts of Christians. Great. Good luck with that. I know the New Testament... It's only shtick. You're giving me her BS now. She herself doesn't believe. She wants it changed or monitored. But good luck with changing the religious texts of other religions. It's not one thing, Luke. It's the entirety of the depictions of Jews in the New Testament. Now, I don't think it's fair to say that the entirety of depictions of Jews in the New Testament is that they are satanic. That is just one part
Hey, live in your fantasy. I'm in reality, says Half Galatian. Read a moral reckoning. Do you think making the demands of Christians for censorship is more likely to make Christians increase or have uh, favorable opinions of Jews? Daniel Godehagen wrote, before the Vatican unsealed certain documents. It's a shame. I just want the discussion. Because if examined, no godly person would think this is a God-inspired text. Uh, I think millions of people would uh, think the New Testament is a God-inspired text. But I, I don't think from, from an outside perspective that you know a neutral observer would be more or less likely to find the the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, you know, more or less likely to be God-inspired. I know the Gospels more than you. Full stop, says half Galatian. Okay. Elon Musk doesn't want to run Twitter. He puts a poll up. Maybe he'll move on to other things. Okay. Let's get back to, yeah, there is an intensity to how Ashkenazi Jews discuss things, which I frequently find rather invigorating, but uh, it's it's somewhat different from the more judicious, uh, measured, understated ways that uh, Northern Europeans discuss things. So Ashkenazi Jews originate you know, from the Middle East. The Middle Easterners have a certain passion and intensity in how they talk about things, even if it's just what they want for breakfast. Employees found no reason to laugh. Not only had they spent months watching their new boss disparage the company he was planning to buy, but the company had also already frozen hiring, cut down on corporate spending and travel, and shuttered offices. Staff knew layoffs were coming. Now the richest man in the world had shown up. Who really cares whether the staff at Twitter are happy or not? Just in the whole balance of things on the 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 full picture you know, the wider perspective on the importance of twitter i would say employee happiness is not one of my primary concerns now i'm not sure i would enjoy working for elon musk i really don't think that's particularly what's important right now with regard to twitter punching down with a jokey meme the dismantling of... I don't see any problem with punching down. Right? Punching down is not inherently more right or wrong than, than punching up. Right? There's not you know, a certain segment of people who should never be criticized and other people who should be relentlessly criticized. We all benefit from accurate criticism. I am better. I am sharper. I am smarter because I argue with half Galician and I listen to what half Galician says. Right? I am better off for accurate criticism. You are better off for accurate criticism. I am better off being challenged. You are better off being challenged. Right? We don't see ourselves. I am coming on this live stream. I'm sharing my delusions about reality. You're sharing your delusions about reality. But together in this discussion, we get a clearer understanding of reality. We think more clearly, more importantly, more comprehensively, more productively, more ethically, more usefully, when we reason socially, when we reason together. When I share with you what I'm thinking, you share with you what you're thinking. You challenge my points, I challenge your points. You criticize me, I criticize you. 
you're all better off for that kind of thinking as opposed to you know, living alone, thinking our thoughts, and uh, you know, just having these, these internal dialogues, all right? We are, we are incredibly good at fooling ourselves. We're incredibly good, however, at detecting when other people are trying to manipulate us. Like we did not evolve to be gullible. Right? We evolved to be very good at picking up when other people are trying to manipulate us. But we did evolve to have a grandiose, unrealistic conception of our own capacity for detecting reality and detecting truth. So I am much better off for half Galician's challenges. I'm much better off for half Galician disparaging my thinking. I'm half much better off for you know half Galician's you know criticisms. Like we're all better off from a vigorous challenging and criticizing and provoking and promoting and dissecting and analyzing. Because when we think socially, when we when we bounce things off each other, all right, we will be more likely to increasingly approximate reality and increasingly develop more sophisticated top-down models for how the world works and bottom-up models for how we work as individuals compared to what we come up with on our own, which is frequently completely disconnected from reality. Let's have a look at the chat. What is your education level? Okay, uh, Huff Galician, I think, had a pretty solid uh, yeshiva education. I heard a guy complaining about Australian immigration and Africans flying in. Yeah, so some Australians really object to all the South African immigrants. South African immigrants are more likely to be entrepreneurial than Native Australians, you know, more likely to make uh, more money, to, to get ahead. You know, South Africans who've moved to Australia have been very productive and they are very important in the Jewish community. Afghalishan has is a very smart guy. Right? We're talking a guy who's got you know, the same approximate IQ that I have or higher than I have. He's very well read, very smart guy, very challenging. Right. The dismantling of Twitter's leadership started on day one, once the deal closed. The new boss fired CEO Parag Agrawal and Chief Financial Officer Ned Siegel. Both had slipped out of the building earlier that day in anticipation. Vijaya Gadi, the widely respected head of policy and the architect of Twitter's content policies, was also fired. Sean Edgett, the general... Whoa, she was widely respected, Right. Did, did uh, you widely respect Vijaya Gadi? I know I didn't. I don't think you respect her either. I don't think she's widely respected in our sphere. I think she's widely derided in our sphere. So this is such an insular, pedantic perspective. Right? This is so highly partisan. And I don't have a problem with it being partisan. You know, I don't have you know, a big problem with it being pedantic, but the writer believes he is conveying objective truth. I understand I'm giving you a partisan approach. I understand I'm giving you a selective approach. Now, I understand that what I'm saying is coming through a filter of my life experience and you know, my 
situation at this time. The, the writer is composing this as though he is speaking just objective truth, you know, above all partisanship, but he is every bit in the grip of partisanship as I am and as you are. So she was widely respected by whom? Uh, you know, I, I'm, there are, I'm sure there are people who respect me in certain areas. I'm sure half Galician respects me in certain things. In certain things, he thinks I'm a bloody bogan. Right? In plenty of things, he thinks I'm totally Meshuggana. In other things, he respects me. Certain things, I respect half Galician. In other things, I think he's Meshuggana. Right? It's not like I can effectively, you know, assess uh, half Galician whether, you know, I respect his totality or not. I respect some things about him. I think he's Meshuggana crazy on other things. I'm sure he respects some things about me and thinks I'm crazy on other things. Uh, this idea that, uh, you know, Vijaya Gadi is just widely respected, it's so deluded. Right? There are things that Donald Trump has accomplished that are worthy of respect. There are so many things about Donald Trump that are not worthy of respect. Depending on your perspective, you know, you'll have more or less respect for Donald Trump and Vijaya Gadi. These things are not, you know, objective truth. And he is writing this as though, oh, it's just objective that this Vijaya Gadi is you know, universally widely respected. Baloney. Council was ignominiously escorted out of the office as employees prepared for the company Halloween party. Almost everyone else on Twitter's executive team resigned shortly thereafter and was replaced by a cadre of Musk loyalists, whom some employees started referring to as the goons. They included investors such as Talicanus, for. Did I read the Tablet Magazine article on Jews being vulgar? No, I haven't read that, but I do like uh, Tablet Magazine. So I have not been reading as much as I normally do. I've been spending time with family. I've been spending time with friends. I've been spending time with myself swimming at the beach and going on long bushwalks. I've been spending time working. I've been spending time moving tons of fertilizer. I've been spending time watching the cricket, watching the World Cup. I've been spending time trying to do pull-ups. I'm probably reading you know, newspapers about a third as much as I normally do. Former PayPal exec David Sachs and Andreessen Horowitz partner Sriram Krishnan. Musk's personal lawyer, Alex Spiro, and business manager, Jared Birchall, and SpaceX board member, Antonio Gracias. That group never took formal roles at Twitter, but some were added to the corporate directory and started advising Musk on everything from product ideas to layoffs. As Sachs met with Twitter's product leads, he floated the idea of putting the entire service behind a paywall. In a separate meeting... So is half Galician Orthodox. So half Galician is like many Jews, uh, probably doesn't subscribe to you know, the... Orthodox code of Jewish belief as perhaps articulated by Maimonides. But if he goes to synagogue, it's going to be an Orthodox synagogue. So life in Orthodox Judaism is not primarily about subscribing to a set of beliefs. It's about a particular way of life. And almost nobody in the Orthodox Jewish community you know, observes everything. Right? To varying degrees, everyone in the Orthodox Jewish community you know, picks and chooses there are certain things that you need to abstain from doing publicly if you want to maintain your membership in the community. 
But uh, Orthodox Judaism is primarily a way of life, you know, where you don't publicly deviate from certain Jewish observance, such as keeping the Sabbath, keeping kosher. With sales leaders, Gracias hyped his pal Musk. He's here to win. Luke, do you have any experience with Chabad? Yes, I have uh, been to many Chabad synagogues, and I would say that my experience with Chabad is overwhelmingly positive. I've had such good experiences with Chabad Jews in general and with Chabad rabbis in particular. Tim says, I think Twitter will survive. doesn't matter if Elon Musk is CEO. Belief is paramount, says reasonable, responsible. There can not be any commandments without a commander. Abel says, Elon Musk will lose and leave it to someone else to bring in the ad money. He said, according to a former employee, he's a winner. He wins everywhere. Musk set up shop on the second floor of Twitter's San Francisco. Okay, so I can see there is some use in describing certain people as winners and certain people as losers, but even people we would normally describe as winners, such as Michael Jordan, there are vast swaths of their life where they've been losing. And Michael Jordan has, you know, gambled away, you know, well over a million dollars. So in reality, nobody is always winning. All those people who you regard as winners, they have deep pain about things that they've lost. So we all have situations where we have won, we have situations where we've lost. Life will humble all of us. So now people, in truth, they're not winners or losers. They're winners in certain situations, losers in other situations. Go office. Though to most Twitter employees, he may as well have been on Mars. It would be almost two weeks before the rank and file heard from him. There were no emails, no all-hands meetings, no formal announcements from on high that Musk had even taken over. It was a strange way to conduct a courtship, though it also spoke to his intended plans. He wasn't there to make friends. On day two, Musk asked engineers to print out their most recent code so he and his team could review their work and evaluate whether they were making a meaningful contribution. The directive led to employees milling around the printers with stacks of paper before somebody realized that printing Twitter's entire code base... So, just curious, on a scale of 1 to 10, how important is the happiness level of Twitter employees to you? So from my expense, from my perspective, now that the caffeine is starting to run out, the importance of Twitter employee happiness to me is a one on a scale of one to ten. But uh, maybe, maybe that's just me. Maybe it's of prime importance to you that Twitter employees be happy, healthy, and holy. Might pose a security issue. Employees started milling around the shredders instead. At the same time, Musk brought in dozens of engineers from Tesla to start collecting information on ongoing projects and lay the groundwork for a massive downsizing. Twitter managers were instructed to stack rank their employees, with rankings due hours after they were assigned. No one knew for certain how many people would be laid off, though at first the numbers seemed reasonable, 25% to 30% for many teams. Some employees... 
there's no objective reasonable amount of a percentage of layoffs for Twitter. Right? There's no inherent reason that 20 or 25 percent is more reasonable than 50 percent or 70 percent. Like this guy speaks as though he is God at Mount Sinai. These who had no desire to work for Musk petitioned their bosses to be included on the list of layoffs. And just because you were making a list of your own didn't mean you weren't going to be on somebody else's. Still, those few Twitter executives who earned one-on-one -on -one time with Musk early on walked away impressed. The CEO seemed thoughtful and curious. He asked a lot of questions and in many cases said the things people wanted to hear. He promised to consult a special advisory council before making decisions on whether to bring back banned accounts such as Trump's. In those first few days of the new Elon era, he managed to restore a little hope. Joel Roth, Twitter's head of trust and safety. Restore a little hope. Restore a little hope for whom? All right? It depends on the individual, right? He's speaking again as though it's, you know, just uh, the, the objective perspective, right? Different people will have different levels of hope depending upon their situation and their perspective, right? He's talking about, the author of this article is talking about restoring hope for other liberal, secular, left-wing elites, right? He's not talking about restoring hope for trans. Buddy hell, I'm trying to run a show here. He was among the optimists. Because Musk believed that Twitter had overstepped on banning accounts and fighting misinformation, and that it was too heavy-handed in policing user content, Roth assumed he would be fired immediately. He largely oversaw those policies. Instead, Musk started leaning on him privately and publicly, retweeting his posts and encouraging people to follow him for updates on Twitter's election plans. It was... Oh my God. Elon Musk was praising and retweeting an employee who he later fired and criticized. That is so shocking. How haphazard. My God. So much chaos. Oh, I'm going to forward my brow. What the heck? Come on, man. Apple, come on. I'm an alliance that surprised everybody, Roth included. By day six, the severity of Musk's planned cuts started to crystallize. Chief Marketing Officer Leslie Berland, the last remaining member of Twitter's executive team and the person most closely linked to its employee-friendly corporate culture, was fired. Word soon leaked that layoffs were going to be much bigger than managers had initially expected. Musk was planning to cut 50% of Twitter's more than 7,000 employees later that week. Late in the evening on day 8 and into the early morning hours of day 9, hundreds of employees converged on Spaces, the social network's tool for broadcasting live audio, taking turns sharing stories about their time at the company and... Gre oh my God, it sounds like they're experiencing emotional distress. That's so sad. I'm so worried about the happiness level of uh, the, the leftists who work at Twitter. So sad. All right, uh, let's see what uh, Daniel Goldhagen has to say about Hitler's willing executioners. ...of the open mind has been made possible by grants from... All right, recorded 
October 30, 1996. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. Hey, Richard. And some months back, we discussed a Harvard University professor's totally compelling and quite controversial book entitled Hitler's Willing Executioners, Ordinary Germans and the Holocaust. Its subject, understanding the actions and mindset of the tens of thousands of ordinary Germans who became genocidal killers. Let me guess here. I'm going to say that Germans, like non-Germans, don't tend to care very much about outgroups unless they view outgroups as threatening their way of life and what they love and value. If they view outgroups as threatening what they hold precious, then they're going to have really negative views of outgroups. So how do you think Jewish Israelis feel about the Palestinians? On average, Jewish Israelis would like the Palestinians to disappear. Oh my God, how genocidal. We all wish that our most hated enemies, I think many of us do, wish it would just disappear. How do I think Palestinians think about Jewish Israelis? They wish that they would just disappear. Right? How do you think Russians who are fighting Ukraine feel about Ukrainians? They wish Ukrainians would disappear. How do you think Ukrainians feel about Russians? They wish the Russians would just disappear. It's normal, natural, and to some degree even healthy to wish that your enemies would just disappear. So that's my knee-jerk reaction. Its conclusion that anti-Semitism moved many thousands of ordinary Germans and would have moved millions more had they been appropriately positioned to slaughter Jews. Not well, guess what? In some circumstances, you and I would be the equivalent of concentration camp inmates. In other circumstances, you and I would be the equivalent of concentration camp guards. It's not like one group that is just only fated to do good, kind, helpful things, all right? In some circumstances, we fight. In some circumstances, we submit, right? We're all locked in an iron cage together. And the world is a dangerous place. Different peoples have different interests. Human wants are infinite. Diversity and proximity frequently lead to conflict. There are a substantial number of Jews who have negative feelings about non-Jews. There are a substantial number of non-Jews who have negative feelings about Jews. I think the proportions are approximately equal. Depending on the circumstances, depending upon what's at stake, this can activate people to behave in more or less hateful ways. Right? Initially, the Nazis formed a Havara agreement to send Jews to Israel and allow them to take many of their financial assets to Israel. So initially in the 1930s, the, the Nazis cooperated with the Zionists. Then when circumstances changed, when Germany invaded uh, the Soviet Union and situation has changed, circumstances have changed, then the Nazis became bent on exterminating as many Jews as possible. The Nazis took power in 1933. They did not immediately set out on exterminating Jews. Uh, Hutus and Tutsis have hated each other for a long time. It took a particular set of circumstances for one tribal group to start slaughtering another tribal group.
not economic hardship, not the coercive means of a totalitarian state, not social psychological pressure. Not Let me guess. Uh, Jewish Germans and non-Jewish Germans had areas where they saw the world differently, where they had different values, where they had clashing interests, and that these clashes of interest at various times became so acute that things turned really nasty. And let me guess, the group that was 99% of Germany had more power and more means to inflict you know, death and destruction on the 1% of the population who was Jewish than the 1% had to inflict on the 90%. So that's what I understand is going on here. Okay, let's uh, get back to this 1996 conversation with Daniel. Not invariable psychological propensities, but ideas about Jews that were pervasive in Germany and had been for decades. In so why were there ideas about Jews in Germany that were pervasive and had been for decades? Because Jews have lived in Germany, right? If Jews never lived in Germany, there would be fewer ideas about Jews, and they would have less emotional valence. Great, I sound like an intellectual. Emotional valence is a fancy academic elite word for emotional intensity. So you probably have you know, some views or some reactions to Hottentots, but these views probably don't have much emotional valence for you because in your day-to-day -day life, you don't interact with Hottentots. If you were constantly interacting with Hottentots, you would have a different emotional valence to your views and opinions and feelings about Hottentots because Jews and Jewish Germans and non-Jewish Germans had been living together, sometimes sleeping together, sometimes competing with each other, sometimes pursuing different ends and means, sometimes having different interests that clashed, right? There came times where there were tensions and so there were Jewish Germans who developed very negative views of non-Jewish Germans, and there were non-Jewish Germans who viewed Jews in a negative light, and when circumstances became acute, so that the conflict of interest was now acute, just like when the Hutus and the Tutsis had this long-running mutual dislike of each other, but then circumstances changed, so one group now had the means, the opportunity, and the incentive to do violence against the other group, then it happens, right? When two groups have a vital you know, conflict of interests and one group now has the opportunity to rid itself of its enemy and they have incentives to do so, then really bad things you know, tend to happen. And it all depends on circumstances, incentives, the intensity of the emotional valence. ...induced ordinary Germans to kill unarmed, defenseless Jewish men, women, and children by the thousands. Uh, Half Galatian says, Luke is pretending Christianity is not anti-Judaism, as he only experienced SDA Australian and California Christianity. My father was so anti-Jewish. Right? My father said that Jews are not Jews. Right? Only 
evangelical Christians are Jews. Uh, my, my father said uh, Judaism was done away with at the, at the cross. Uh, my father would preach that Jews have suffered, including the Holocaust, because they rejected Jesus. I would say I am rather familiar with anti-Judaic sections of Christianity. Parts of Christianity are anti-Jewish. Other parts of Christianity are indifferent to Jews. Other parts of Christianity are philo-Semitic. Some parts of Islam are anti-Jewish. Some parts of Islam are indifferent to Jews. Other parts of Islam are Jew-friendly. So it depends on what part of Christianity we're talking about under what circumstance, whether you know, those parts of Christianity or Islam or any other group are going to be anti-Jewish, pro-Jewish, or indifferent. Yes, my father held typical views of Jews among Christians who were born and raised prior to World War II. So Nick Fuentes has fairly typical pre-World War II attitudes towards Jews. Christianity has to be anti-Jewish. The whole point of Paul, right? Yes, there has to be a segment of Christianity, a substantial part of Christianity that's anti-Jewish. Otherwise, why would there be any need for Christianity, right? Christianity claims to supplant and fulfill Judaism, right? If, if we can attain heavenly salvation by doing good works, the Apostle Paul said, you know, then Christ died in vain. Uh, guess what? Judaism has to have a segment in it that is anti-Christianity. Christianity makes claims that are completely antithetical to Judaism's claims. Think of this as invasive species. Let's take eucalyptus trees. Bring eucalyptus trees to California where they're not native, and you start planting eucalyptus trees. That eucalyptus trees emit compounds that do not permit other forms of plant life to live you know, underneath it. It wipes them out. Sometimes eucalyptus trees outcompete native wildlife. They suck up more water. They wipe out other forms of native wildlife. So different forms of plant life have different interests. Sometimes invasive species you know, outcompete native species. If you're Jewish, you're a strongly identifying Jew, it would be weird if you did not have some anti-Christian sentiment. If you're a strongly identifying Christian, it would be weird if you did not have some anti-Jewish sentiment. But uh, people are complicated. There are also reasons if you're Jewish to have you know, gratitude towards Christians. And if you're Christian, there are reasons to have you know, gratitude towards Jews. Whether you should have gratitude or hostility depends upon circumstance. Since about the 18th century, the fortunes of Christians and religious Jews have generally marched together because their common enemy is increasingly being secularism. Prior to the 18th century, from about the 4th century to the 18th century, the fortunes of Jews and Christians moved in opposite directions. The stronger Christianity got in a society, the weaker Jews and Judaism got. So that was the tendency for about 1,400 years after the 18th century, then the fortunes of religious Jews and religious Christians increasingly marched together as they had to deal with an increasingly secular world. Okay, let's... Systematically and without pity, 
the perpetrators having consulted their own convictions and morality. So why would people have no pity for our groups? Because they have so much love for their in-group. If you love, love, love your in-group, you are much less likely to have pity for out-groups, right? Why would you hate that which threatens what you most love? Because that's the normal, natural, healthy reaction. If you love something, you hate that which threatens it. Have a look at the chat. Luke is denying the New Testament, the passion. He is generalizing about outgroups and ingroups. Luke is ignoring all history and context. What about pond scum? Yeah, I, I don't believe that various forms of pond scum live, you know, happily with, with each other for very long. As I understand it, I'm not an expert on pond scum. As I understand it, one form of pond scum generally speaking, will drive out other forms of pond scum. As I understand it, subspecies don't live in harmony with each other for very long. As I understand it, when you have multiple subspecies in one specific location, one subspecies will drive out the other subspecies. This is the way of the world, as I understand it. You seem not to be not allowing for legitimate causes of libel, scapegoating, irrational hatred, etc. Well, I just want to understand how the world works. I'm not here to castigate haters. I'm just trying to discern and explain reality as I see it. I'm not here to talk about good guys and bad guys. How could clergy countenance the murder of women and children? You mean like uh, Deuteronomy? Uh, you have God commanding genocide. You have God carrying out genocide in the Torah. So God commands genocide. God wipes out the whole world except Noah and his family. So from, from a, a Torah perspective, there's a time and a place where God decides to wipe out everybody but one particular family. Right? Mass genocide. Other situations, God commands the Israelites to carry out genocide, including women and children. Chad says, I feel gratitude and affinity for the unprecedented kindness toward Jews of the mostly white and Christian founding stock demographic of the United States. Was I taught that Jews are collectively responsible for Christ's death? Yes, that was one thing I was taught about Jews. But I heard 20 times as much anti-Roman Catholic rhetoric in my upbringing as anti-Jewish rhetoric. I never remember sitting around the dining room table and talking about the Jews with my family. You assume I have never read my Greek New Testament. I've not read it in Greek or read you know, comparatively little in Greek. I've uh, read the New Testament in translation many, many times. My point is that Christianity, Christian ideology is homicidally anti-Jewish. All in-group ideologies under certain circumstances are homicidal towards out-groups that threaten the existence of the in-group. This is not something that's unique to Christianity. Yeah, 
If you look, you can find unique things about Christianity, and you can find unique things about Judaism, but we're still dealing fundamentally with an in-group versus out-group dynamic. We're all stuck in an iron cage together. We never know other people's intentions towards us. We can never fully predict how other people will operate. Whenever you form any kind of connection with anyone, you are also simultaneously creating the inevitability of feeling betrayed. Right? There's no way that half Galatian and I can form any sort of connection and not then set the groundwork for feeling betrayed by the other person. Right? To connect with people is to create the inevitability of betrayal. To form an in-group identity is inevitably to form negative feelings about out-groups. The stronger your in-group identity, the more likely you are to have negative feelings about out-groups. The stronger your Jewish identity, the more likely you are to have negative feelings about Christians and Muslims. The stronger your Christian identity, the more likely you are to have negative feelings about Jews and Muslims. The stronger your Islamic identity, the more likely you are to have negative feelings about Christians and Jews. An objective assessment of history would surely find any number of instances of, you know, irrational hostility. Yeah, but I prefer not to take the, you know, the irrational uh, way out and just, oh, how could people be so irrational? My prejudice, my preference is to try to understand the rationality behind that which is seemingly irrational. That's what I try to do. It's just the easy way out to just dismiss sentiments that I don't like, that I don't approve of, that I find threatening, that I want to castigate as irrational. I try to understand the rationality behind the seemingly irrational. That's my prejudice. And having judged the mass annihilation of Jews to be right, did not want to say no. Well, political scientist Daniel Jones the Torah describes the mass annihilation of peoples as right in certain circumstances, right? What in-group that is threatened for its very survival is, is not inclined to lash out in a genocidal fashion against those who want to genocide it. Donna Goldhagen wrote this extraordinary study, and when we spoke here... There were no reservations about his presentation of ordinary Germans' eliminationist anti-Semitism as basic to their often zealous actions as Hitler's willing executioners. So, half Galician says, I love Christians, I love the glorious achievements of Christendom. It's Christian theology that I have a problem with, as it likely would have killed me had I lived 60 years earlier. It wasn't Christian theology that instigated the Holocaust. It was only a post-Christian Europe that it could have carried out the Holocaust. Ideology in and of itself does not create genocide. Its particular circumstances, in particular, specifically a profound conflict of interest that turns into an either-or situation, like either my group survives and the other group is destroyed, or my group is destroyed and the other group triumphs. 
right? In those particular pressing circumstances, then you get horrible things like genocides. So genocide wasn't primarily driven by Christian theology. Like Christian theology had been around for 2,000 years, and it hadn't led to anything like the Holocaust. Now, you can argue, you know, without the anti-Jewish elements of Christianity and Christian theology, the Holocaust could not have happened. Uh, fine. But you don't need theology. What you need are profound conflicts of interest between groups. That's what leads to conflict. Different groups have different interests. If they are in proximity to each other and the conflicts are profound and life-threatening and survival-threatening, then you get very nasty reactions. Luke is ranting but devoid of any understanding. Alon Musk wants us to stop spending time on a money loser. Okay, let's go back to Daniel Goldhagen. But Professor Goldhagen told us that he was soon to face his German readers on their own turf and promised, and promised to report back on their reactions and in turn on his own. Indeed, from Hamburg, Germany. Such a brave man. I'm sure Daniel Goldhagen has made hundreds of thousands of dollars from Germans and their reactions to his book. Like, he is making bank. He has received speaking fees you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, I mean, Germans uh, after World War II you know, love to flagellate themselves about you know, how evil the, the German nation has been. I mean, Germans, many Germans would absolutely lap up Daniel Goldhagen's critiques. I'm sure he's earned hundreds of thousands of dollars from German self-hatred. In September 1996, Reuters reported Professor Goldhagen as unexpectedly agreeing his hard-hitting work had flaws. And on Reuters television, he said, I skirted over some of this history a little too quickly. Now that I've had some time to reflect upon the book, I think one thing I would devote more attention to and integrate into the analysis is the effect of the First World War in radicalizing German society. Reuters also reported that several of the 400 Germans in the audience said they were disappointed that Goldhagen, who has vehemently defended his book and blasted his German critics in print, simply agreed with some key objections when discussing them in person. So let me now ask Professor Goldhagen whether we here need share that disappointment with those Germans. Well, the first thing to be said is that the Reuters report was a thorough misrepresentation of what actually happened in Hamburg. Good. The headlines in Germany were, Goldhagen defends his book, and this Reuters correspondent, who, when he interviewed me for Reuters television, was thoroughly hostile, was arguing with me, even though he admitted he had only read portions of the book, put out a report in which he twisted my words and presented it in some, in, as I said, a thoroughly misleading way. In no sense did I... That's my general experience with the news media, right? I've been interviewed you know, over 50 times. Usually the journalist has an agenda. They just cut and you know, paste you know, those segments of my comments that uh, assist their agenda. So usually journalists don't 
you know, do that much, you know, background work. They, they don't read, you know, all, all of your book or your, your book. So what uh, Daniel Goldhagen is uh, complaining about, very, very common. Oh my God, I just, I find listening to Daniel Goldhagen just a slightly, no, substantially higher IQ version of, of listening to Al Sharpton. I'm not sure I can, I can take much of him. Let me see if I can go back to this article on Elon Musk. By day six, the severity of Musk's planned cuts started to crystallize. Chief Marketing Officer Leslie Berland the last remaining member of Twitter's executive team and the person most closely linked to its employee-friendly corporate culture was fired. Word soon leaked that... Now, again, tell me, you intensely preoccupied with the well-being and the happiness of Twitter employees. Not one of my priorities. But the, the news media just assumes that this is like, you know, the major issue with Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Uh, Twitter left-wing employees, are they happy? Are they thriving? Right? Twitter employees are overwhelmingly on the left. I am overwhelmingly on the right. Twitter employees, like other members of the left, are an outgroup. They are fundamentally hostile to the type of America that I want to live in. I don't care that much about their happiness. Layoffs were going to be much bigger than managers had initially expected. Musk was planning to cut 50% of Twitter's more than 7,000 employees later. And Reasonable says, would it be antisocial to ask our host about a past Atlantic article on a completely unrelated topic? Never antisocial. Ask away. And it takes tremendous energy and effort to do a stream like this. And there's a chance that you may ask something or say something that sets me off and gives me energy and inspiration to live stream without your commentary without, you know, half deletion, without people pushing back, without people asking, without people critiquing, without people criticizing. I don't have the strength or the energy to do this, you know, longer than 10 minutes. That week, late in the evening on day eight and into the early morning hours of day nine, hundreds of employees converged on Spaces, the social network's tool for broadcasting live audio, taking turns sharing stories about their time at the company and grieving for what might come next. To Musk, cutting half of Twitter's workforce was an unavoidable business decision. Regarding Twitter's reduction in force, unfortunately there is no choice when the company is... Okay, I love this. Uh, half deletion says I hate Jews, but he's not saying this to inflame. He's just saying this to be frank, uh, just to be open and honest, right? He, he's, he's telling me I hate Jews, but uh, not trying to insult you, not trying to demean you, not trying to make this emotional. This is not any kind of uh, rant. I'm not trying to provoke you. I'm just innocently stating that uh, you hate Jews, Luke, but uh, I don't uh, mean anything impolite. I, I don't mean anything personal about that. It's just that you know, I'm just saying, observing that you hate Jews and that you're ignorant, but it's not an insult. Losing over $4 million a day, he tweeted. To many employees, the layoffs signified the end of Twitter as they knew it, the death of a company culture that had, for better or worse, become a part of the product's identity. Some employees... Ah, did you know that uh, Twitter's company culture was a key part of Twitter's identity? Yeah, I've often found myself you know, laying awake at night 
now wondering about the well-being, the health, and the happiness of uh, Twitter's culture. Just so, so deeply concerned about the happiness level of people who hate what I believe in and stand for and fight for. Jobs were saved. Woke up the next morning wishing they'd been fired instead. The chaos machine chugged along. Twitter's engineering teams quickly realized they had fired too many people by mistake, and some employees were approached about returning. In one meeting after the layoffs, Gracias, the SpaceX director, was left once again to defend Musk, who'd become a punching bag for now former employees watching the company in turmoil. So something I virtually never do is defend anyone. So, like, let's say I'm hanging out with half Galician, and let's say he trashes Jim Bell. trashes half deletion. I'm never gonna speak out for half deletion. Why? Because it's always pointless. It's useless, I, I find. It's just not worth the energy, it's not worth the effort. I just think there are more productive ways to spend your energy, your time and your words than trying to, you know, defend people. Right? People have the views of people for you know various reasons. You defending them is not gonna make any difference. So I just don't see the point of saying words that are just going to needlessly alienate you from the other people that you're talking with and just make you frustrated and them frustrated, right? Just going to kind of set you at odds. Yeah, in general, I think it is useless and pointless to defend others. Well, Gracias asked employees to show the CEO some empathy. This On the other hand, I am very lazy and frequently self-centered and I don't like confrontation so it's probably the the more moral and the more honorable thing is for me to have spent you know more time and energy and effort in my life you know defending others who have been you know unjustly demeaned and I'm just too lazy and too self-centered and too scared of conflict to engage in that it's hard for him he said Musk woke up on day 12 and tweeted multiple masturbation jokes. On day 14, he killed Twitter's famous work-from-anywhere-forever policy in the middle of the night. On day 18, despite his crowing about free speech and tweeting that comedy is now legal on Twitter, he began firing workers who criticized him on Twitter or in its internal slack. Roth resigned on day 15. There were decisions and requests that were... Okay, so I'm doing a live stream, I'm you know, playing this, I'm playing that, I'm you know, picking on snippets of the, the chat, and guess what? I completely misrepresented something that Half Galician said. He didn't say that I hated Jews. Like, I went off on Half Galician for completely bogus reasons. There was absolutely zero factual basis for my rant three minutes ago against Half Galician. Why? Because I'm in a particular circumstance where I don't get to engage in a tremendous amount of context-seeking, where I don't get to you know, understand the, the full uh, discussion, where I completely you know, misread something. I'm, I'm simply like using, I'm imputing into the chat all sorts of things that are not there. I'm imputing into the commentary of half Galician all sorts of things that are not there. I am looking at reality, and I'm seeing all sorts of things that are not there. I am operating in a delusion. I am firing off and being nasty and false and defamatory against half Galician. 
because I'm operating in a particular context, all right, where I don't you know, have, have the privilege of you know, pausing and thinking and seeing things in context. So please, I hope, I know how Felician understands this, but you know, I hope if, if you're watching, you understand that you know, here I am, I, I see something, I respond. It's uh, not, not always the most considered response. Sometimes I am responding to things that are just not there. They're only there in my mind. I am completely delusional. I am you know, completely wrong. I have completely misread the situation. I don't know what I'm talking about. Right? I come on here, much of the time, I don't know what I'm talking about. I haven't carefully paid attention to whatever it is I'm ranting about. And then I hope there are some things where I do say something that is of value. Quite top down and at odds sometimes with this notion of we're not going to make big decisions until we have this council, until we consult with people, he said at a Knight Foundation event. Other newly former employees were more succinct. I said it before and I'll say it again, tweeted a fired engineer named Sasha Solomon. Kiss my ass, Elon. Wow, that's uh, powerful. All right, let's get some Daniel Goldhagen. I take back uh, my book. In fact, I defended his thesis. What I did say is that if I had written the many other books that people were asking me to have written, if I'd written an entire book on anti-Semitism, or if I'd written an entire book on the Nazi revolution, then I would have added more things, amplified on certain points, incorporated other things into the analysis. But I adamantly said that evening, and many times since then in Germany, that none of this, including a further discussion of the First World War, would have changed my argument in any way. Wishful thinking on the part of the Reuters person? More than wishful thinking. As I said, the German media, which covered my trip extensively, had headlines again and again about how I was defending my theses and, by the way, convincing many Germans uh, of my point of view. Tell us about that, convincing many Germans. Uh, the trip to Germany lasted 12 days. And it included many interviews with the media. The cornerstones, the many cornerstones of the trip were, however, six public panel discussions, which took part before large audiences and which many of which were also televised nationally and regionally. Uh, and it became clear early in the trip, really a few days into the trip, after the Hamburg discussion, where, by the way, the audience clapped, and they clapped again and again, overwhelmingly for the points I made, not for the points of my opponents. It became clear that many in Germany were being won over to the book, to the discussion, against the wisdom of the opinion makers in Germany. And so the story of the trip became not just, is this book right? How much of it is new? Are the conclusions valid? But why is the German public accepting the book, embracing it, and the discussion which the book has produced? What's your answer to that question? The book... I know puts, it's most persuasive. No, no, that's not. Independent of, whether, independent of whether people agree with my conclusions or not, there are certain things the book does which I think people in Germany recognize are necessary. The first is that it shifts the focus of attention away from abstract institutions and structures, the Nazi Party, the SS, the terror apparatus, 